A longer edition of Inside Politics today. We lead off with NDP leader John Horgan, Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. At the bottom of the hour, Keith Baldry, Ron Palmer and Rob Shaw join us. All of that in Kamloops Civic Politics as well. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and thank you for tuning in. It is a beautiful uh, day setting the stage here in Kamloops. Blue sky, sunshine out there. And we begin by adding a twist to the old Star Trek prologue. We are going where no politician has gone before in BC politics right now. What happens now? Well, John Horgan and Andrew Weaver join me to discuss just that. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Uh, John, I'm sure you appreciated that Star Trek thing, by the way. I did, I did. (laughs) All right, uh, let's start with the freshest news first. John, uh, you wrote a letter that uh, was released uh, by a group fighting the Site C project up north late yesterday, uh, apparently writing BC Hydro CEO Jesse McDonald, asking them to stand down in the Site C-related evictions, not finalize any contracts, quote, that do not contain a penalty-free cancellation clause, unquote. Uh, Do you have the power to make that request, John, and do you expect Hydro to comply? Well, it's not about power or anything like that. It's about uh, reminding BC Hydro that we are in a transition period. Uh, We're not certain what the outcome is going to be and how long that will take. But what we do know is that uh, both Andrew and I have agreed to uh, put the question of the economic viability of Site C and the consequences for ratepayers, people, uh, your listeners, who are going to have to pay for this project, and uh, it seems uh, only prudent that uh, BC Hydro be reminded of that and, and also be reminded that they shouldn't be, sign, be signing any contracts in the short term that will add to the cost to ratepayers until we know uh, exactly where we're going with this. Uh, that's why we sent the letter. We sent a copy to uh, Christy Clark so she was aware of it. It's not about anything other than advising Hydro that we're in a transition period. All right, Mr. Weaver, I know that uh, you're not a big fan of Site C, uh, but yet you seem to have uh, basically adopted the NDB position in your deal uh, to send to the BCUC. Uh, your position on the letter and where Site C should go? Well, yeah, I support the letter, obviously. Uh, you know, where our position has been that we should stop the work uh, until and simply stop Site C. You know, in the negotiations, uh, I, I was que- uh, questioning Mr. Uh, Mr. Horgan as, as, uh, about what he meant by sending it to Site C. Because, uh, you know, I'd met with Jessica McDonald, and she told me that it was going to take a very long period of time to do that. And I w- we had our concerns that we'd get past the point of no return. And we got assurances in negotiations uh, that, uh, we had, uh, that the, the process will be fast, that the ta- it will be tasked to be very fast and, and uh, couple that with the letter that went out today, the fact I'm meeting with the Boons and the mayor of Hudson Hope today, I think we came to an agreement that uh, was a good compromise that we could, all, we could all agree on. All right, so bare bones here. Should this project be stopped or slowed down at all in, in the meantime and in between time? I'll start with you, John. Well, no, uh, what uh, both Andrew and I agreed to and what I think is the responsible course is that uh, work will continue but not irreversible work, uh, that being, you know, destroying the family farm of the Boons and, and uh, other families in the region. And instead, let's focus on making sure that this is the right project. The B.C. Liberals, I mean, let's, let's be absolutely clear about this, Shane. The B.C. Liberals, for the first time in recent memory, has directed B.C. Hydro to proceed with a very, very big project without third-party oversight, without going to the Utilities Commission. And the consequences of these decisions that the Liberals made will not be paid for by Liberals, they'll be paid for by people. And we want to make sure that when we make multi-billion dollar decisions, we're not just doing it for political advantage, we're doing it in the public interest. And that's why we want to put the question to the Utilities Commission. That's what the Liberals should have done mm-hmm. uh, two, two and a half years ago. All right, well, assuming we form government here and this goes to the BCUC, and we obviously don't know what they're going to say, but, but Andrew, do you, would you be supportive of any position where Site C continues? Well, that, yeah, I don't want to prejudge what the, <laughs> they have six weeks uh, to, they'll have six weeks to come up with some uh, accounting analysis. Uh, we'll make a decision there. I mean, I've, I've always said uh, it, it's reckless economically. It depends how far the Liberals have made it reckless. That uh, uh, We'll have to see what the numbers come in. But it, it's, you know, we know that we're going to lose money for, for years to come, taxpayer money, which will be directly uh, uh, passed on to ratepayers. As a, as a consequence of this fact, there's no market for this for this pr- uh, power right now. You know, I was just at the Clean Energy uh, Conference yesterday in Vancouver. Uh, a whole sector across our economy uh, are, are troubled by the fact that they're 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 essentially in, in in life support system because of the fact that Site C has killed any 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 potential market for 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 renewables across BC. But and then we have we have more energy today than we know what to do with. And every time a mill closes, and just down the streets in Merritt 
the Tolco mill uh, means less supply requirements from uh, BC Hydro. So there are some big transformative changes happening in the economy, and and the BC Liberals uh, ignored that. And and that's again why the Utilities Commission is there to protect ratepayers. It's not about Liberal NDP Green. It's about is BC Hydro a company that belongs to all of us, industry and individuals, is it making the right decisions for our economy and for our future? And and that was reckless and irresponsible to proceed without getting that sign-off. But that said, it did proceed, and there are, I don't know, what, thousands of jobs potentially at stake up there? Uh, well, again, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see what, what comes back, as Andrew says. Uh, I mean, I think the more important issue for today is where we stand with softwood lumber. Those are jobs that are threatened right now. Uh, because of a uh, lack of uh, direction from government. So that the sooner we get stability, and which is what our accord would provide to the legislature and to the people of B.C., we can start focusing on the issues, that the pressing issues of softwood, the pressing issues of getting construction going on the infrastructure we need in Kamloops and, and, and right across B.C., which will create jobs and, and put people to work. Before we move on, Andrew, uh, just one final thing on this. I mean, the argument can be made that, that Site C provides clean energy, and while uh, we don't have the, the power need now, you could make the argument we need it later. And conversely, if you're not going to go Site C, how do you jumpstart geothermal and all those things that have essentially, uh, as you have said, been ignored? Well, there's no question that Site C produces uh, large hydro that is clean. I'm not going to argue that it's, it's not clean energy. But the problem is, is that uh, the, uh, it's killed the other sectors that you allude to. You know, you don't, we don't need to jumpstart wind. We don't need to jumpstart geothermal. They're just itching to get going. The problem is they can't because there is the only buyer of electricity in British Columbia is BC Hydro. But BC Hydro doesn't need any power anytime soon uh, for, for a very long time in light of the fact that Site C is on the path. So, so, so there's no jump start necessary. What, what, the, what is necessary is that we actually look for the most cost-effective means and ways of producing power. Uh, that is not Site C. And we look at the most innovative and, and, and distributed ways of doing it. That is renewables. You know, again, at the Clean Energy Conference, First Nations across from north to south, east to west, they're itching. At, they're just itching to get going on, on clean energy projects in their community. But the BC Hydro is the barrier. All right. The other big project, uh, of course, under the microscope is the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Kinder Morgan Canada President Ian Anderson issuing a statement this week saying the project has followed every process. It's met every test. It's been reviewed and analyzed thoroughly. It has NEB approval and environmental certification, and it will proceed. The Trudeau government is backing it. Uh, So do we have any real power as a province to stop this thing, John? Well, we do. And and the First Nations are in court. Uh, The Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Musqueam, among others, are already in court. Uh, fighting for their rights uh, to be protected and observed, and uh, certainly the province can uh, review their participation in those uh, those court cases and intervene in, in 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 the interests of protecting our air, water, and land. We believe that uh, a sevenfold increase in tanker traffic uh, in the Lower Mainland through uh, the Salish Sea and out through the Strait of Juan de Fuca is not in uh, the economic and environmental interests of British Columbia. There are a whole host of projects that desperately need to be kickstarted that will create jobs, valuable jobs for all British Columbians. The sooner we get started on those, the more we can talk about the economic uh, benefits of things like addressing climate change, about distributive energy, about making sure that the hospitals and schools that we need right in Kamloops uh, can get going right now. And I've talked to you repeatedly, uh, Shane, about uh, Highway 1 and the B.C. Liberals made, uh, I think it was 13 kilometers of progress over four years. I think there are jobs that we can put in place right now, building British Columbia, that are there for the long term, not just there for the short term. Andrew, has this thing reached critical mass or no? And, and, and I, I would say no. I mean, we have also, uh, as John mentioned, the courts, the, we've got the Section 35 uh, Aboriginal rights and title, which are being uh, debated and discussed in courts. The province also has 37 conditions that it attached to the, uh, the, pro- the process. You know, I would like to see how those conditions have been met. Uh, there's some, they require provincial approval, and some of them are quite stringent. You know, the, the reality is I participated in the NEB process. Uh, it was clear to anyone who participated in that process that that process was flawed. It was rigged. There was no, no allowance for cross-examination. And, and, you know, again, I like to summarize the, the entire oil spill response that was submitted there is this. It was predicated on the existence of 20 hours of sunlight in the, in the Victoria-Vancouver area. Well, there's not a single place south of Tuk to Yuktuk that has 20 hours of sunlight any day of the year. Look, we're not talking about oil spill responses in Tuk to Yuktuk. We're talking about them in the Sailor Sea. But these concerns were simply ignored in the process. 
And Mr. Trudeau campaigned on revising the NEP process to bring trust into it, and, 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 uh, and including the Kinder Morgan one, and that just simply didn't happen. So, so there's a whole bunch of procedural issues. Uh, there's there's the, 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 the conditions that have to be met, and there's a Section 35 of the Constitution that, 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 are, that are there. All right. Uh, I want to play this really quick clip uh, and get a reaction from you. This is the Kamloops North MLA-elect Peter Millibar, who raised uh, an issue uh, on NL earlier this week, saying that if you yank permits off of Kinder Morgan and, and move to stop what is essentially a legally permitted uh, pipeline, it may cause a chill in the business community. Here's a snippet of that. We'll be uh, seeing a province dragged into court. We'll be scaring off investment for other projects and, and potentially even other projects that those parties would like to see advanced. Start with you, John. Reaction to that? Well, again, uh, uh, Mr. Millibar is uh, newly elected. I look forward to meeting with him uh, and other members of the legislature at an early opportunity. When it comes to private sector investment, there has to be uh, a two-way street here. And our processes, as Andrew pointed out, our processes have to have the confidence not just of the investment community, but the broader community. And we've seen, uh, whether it be on Ajax, whether it be on any number of projects, the public has lost confidence in the in the viability of our our processes to to give approvals, and we need to revitalize those. and And I think there's a great opportunity to send a strong message to the investment community that BC is open for business, provided you uh, are, are there to protect uh, our natural heritage for the long term, create jobs for British Columbians, and and pay your fair share along the way. Th- these are pretty simple principles that I, I remind you are supported by about 57 percent of the people who cast ballots on May 9th. Andrew, quick, a quick reply, response from you. You know, I completely agree. That is classic uh, BC Liberal fear-mongering based in nothing more than rhetoric. The reality is, I would say to, to resource industry, to in investors, they have an opportunity now that they've never had because we can guarantee collectively that we will work to ensure that social license is there by working in a bottom-up fashion to actually get projects forward. When, when company makes, works sweet deal with, uh, with government and then tries to market it onto the people, it never goes through. Nothing ends up happening in BC. You just look at your Ajax mine there in Kamloops uh, because it just divides a community and you could go into fights. When you actually work from the bottom up, you engage First Nations at the get-go, you engage local communities at the get-go, you build social license and your local communities become your strongest advocates. I, I feel very confident that uh, our minority government working with the BC NDP will ensure that we actually can get projects forward in BC because they will be done in a bottom-up fashion that builds support rather than divides communities. All right. Uh, I want to talk to you a couple more topics with you guys. We'll take a quick break and pick it up on the other side here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back again. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Green Party leader Andrew Weaver and the leader of the NDP, John Horgan. Guys, uh, in that deal that you two have agreed to, uh, proportional representation, one of the factors. Uh, Essentially, you're going to establish a clear question. You're going to campaign for it, hold a referendum so people can decide yes or no alongside the 2018 civic election. Now, I checked in the 2014 municipal election, roughly a 33% voter turnout. So the question I want to ask you, is it fair for a low number of voters to determine how a majority of people will vote provincially? Well, first of all, uh, I think more people will show up to vote uh, municipally if they've got something other than their local council to vote for. And the, the rationale for putting the referendum question at the same time of the municipal voting is to make sure that uh, we're reducing costs to the greatest extent possible. I think we'll see a, a stronger turnout, uh, as we just did in the provincial election, uh, back up in the 60% range where we should be, and well, higher would be preferable. But I think people are excited about the, the opportunities that... Uh, a change in our electoral system presents and excited about the prospects of of uh, the green and ndp caucuses working together with uh bc liberals as well uh, to bring forward legislation and policies that make life better for people that's why we all get involved and and we're excited about demonstrating that a minority situation can be good for bc and as a result we'll be able to put forward a, a plan for a change in the voting system and get the approval of the public for that andrew are you concerned about a, a possible low voter turnout or no uh, not at all. You know, we, we uh, had campaigned as because it was one of our six guiding principles, as if we were elected as a majority, we would actually um, change the system, because uh, that's who we are, and that we would have had a resounding mandate to do so. 
uh, the, the NDP campaigned on a, uh, a referendum, and uh, they, they, you combine the two positions, uh, 57% of the population are, uh, have, have supported parties that have these positions. So, so not at all. I mean, we give people the opportunity. You know, he said, damned if you do, damned if you don't. If we didn't have a referendum and we did it, people would complain that they didn't have a chance to, to have comment on their electoral system, and, and uh, so we're giving them that. And so we'll encourage people to vote. You can't do anything more than encourage people to vote. You know, the system we have today, the first-past-the-post actually switched from a preferential ballot back in 1953 without a, a referendum. And, and so there's all sorts of precedents out there. I think it's, you know, we live in a democracy, and we just use the systems we have to ensure that the people have a chance to express themselves. All right, let's talk about the speaker, because uh, an otherwise innocuous post is getting a ton of attention. Uh, Hamish Telford telling me earlier this week that uh, he predicts there might even be a pretty big showdown over this kind of thing. Uh, John, what kind of options do you have on the table to fill that post? Well, firstly, the, it isn't an innocuous position. The speaker is fundamental to our parliamentary democracy. I just meant in the context of sort of the public awareness of the position. Oh, I it's see. obviously okay. fundamental, okay. but it's not one we talk on about that, a whole lot. Just on the public awareness question, I think one of the exciting parts about this uh, this interesting period we're living in is that more and more people are learning more and more about our parliamentary democracy. I was at a, a lacrosse game mm-hmm. last night in New Westminster, and people wanted to talk to me about the speaker and about proportional representation and about why why is it that you have more votes but yet you're still not uh, yet christy clark is still the premier this is an exciting time for people to become aware of our processes but back to the the question of the speaker it's uh, the, the speaker is elected by the members of the legislature and we have not yet been called back we have not yet in fact even been sworn in so once that happens uh, there will be discussions amongst members about who's in the best the best position to sit as the arbiter, as the referee for our discussions going forward, and I look forward to that time. You can't tell it's around me the corner. I hope you can't tell me you're not having those discussions now internally. Uh, well, we are uh, on our side. We haven't yet. Uh, I haven't had an opportunity uh, to talk to uh, Christy Clark about these issues. She has been uh, uh, been doing other things. But uh, when we get back into the legislature and we get to the point of of casting ballots, it's a vote. You vote for the speaker, and uh, it's the person who best reflects the the will of the group. And I, I look forward to that. But that's not been that's not firmed up in any way at this point. Not at all. Andrew, you told us a few weeks ago that you would uh, direct your MLAs to send a letter to the clerk saying that none of them would stand for the job. Are you still on that tact, or no? Absolutely. We there's only three BC Greens in there. We need uh, all hands on deck because we have uh, uh, to ensure that we are able to hold hold government accountable. It also propose uh, ideas of our own and 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 work across uh, party lines. So we will. We cannot be uh, speaker. You know, it is history would say that it is the onus of the government. That like Christy Clark has said she will follow tradition. A tradition is such that she has the first chance to test the confidence of the house. Tradition would also be that the government would elect one of their own because they have they would. Uh, or, or put one of their own up for election as a speaker. Uh, I, I, uh, and so I suspect, actually, this is going to be a big non-event, because if we're going to follow parliamentary tradition, there are some very fine people on all sides of the House who want to ensure that our democracy is followed uh, and that we actually re- have respect and process in the legislature and get out of silly games. I think this will be a non-issue. Uh, there are lots of good people there who could serve as speaker, and I look forward to uh, voting for one or uh, for some of those on the ballot. My understanding is Christy Clark has directed her MLAs not to stand for the job. The Greens, we just heard, have not. So, John, that leaves your guys. Well, first of all, uh, uh, I think uh, that directing people in a, in a legislature to do this or that when there is a, uh, a minority situation is uh, ill-advised. And as, as Andrew said, there are some outstanding people uh, in the legislature who would, uh, liberal, new Democrat, and, and green, who would uh, be ideal representatives for speaker. These are individual choices based on uh, how people want to participate in our democracy and and directing and uh, but in, in andrew's case he's got two newly elected members he's the leader hard to be the leader and the speaker at the same time and the two new people are still trying to figure out where the where the various committee rooms are there are a lot of experienced members in the liberal caucus and the ndp caucus that would be able speakers but i'm not going to prejudge how people will make their personal choices or how they'll vote at the at the opportunity when the opportunity presents itself all right right i did not direct i'm the leader of a party i could not be it two new MLAs who literally are, uh, well, the very green, pun intended, uh, mm-hmm. they, they would not be uh, appropriate as speakers. So we, we have to send our three in, and it was not a direction, it was a matter of common sense.
All right. Yeah, uh, exactly, we're, we're, exactly. Tight, we're tight against the bottom of the hour. Really quick question to both of you. Uh, obviously, still a lot of question marks. Are both your parties still on a war footing, prepared to fight another election if need be? Uh, well, certainly uh, that's not our desire, nor is it the public's desire, but absolutely no. that's uh, the, the essence of uh, the political party process. I think what we've seen, though, uh, Shane, is the, a real opportunity for British Columbia, and, I, and the people that I'm talking to are excited about that. Are BC Liberals excited about it? Not so much, but uh, again, 57% of the people who cast ballots on May 9th are pretty pleased with the outcome. Uh, and, I, and I think there's a great opportunity for Andrew and I and our teams, as well as BC Liberals, to work in the interests of people. That's what we get into this for in the first place. Let's put aside uh, the pettiness and let's look at uh, the bigger issues and the higher calling that we have to make life better for our colleagues and, and for our communities. All right. Final word to you, Andrew. You guys good to go? Should we go into another election? I completely agree with John's position there, is that we want to make this work. We must make it work. Look, both of our parties have campaigned on the importance of proportional representation. If we can't demonstrate to British Columbians that a minority government can work, you know, it's hard to sell a prop rep. So we're going to work to ensure that this does work. We're going to get away from this partisan bickering, try to bring some of the liberals to work as well, because it's important that we work collectively. And I'm really excited about what this can bring for BC. I think British Columbians should be excited, rather than feared of having a minority parliament be excited about it because I think it's, you know, for the first time, we're going to be able to start putting people first, not vested interests, but people first. And that is really inspiring. Gentlemen, uh, you've been generous. We didn't even get to big money, which is another thing that once we get that out, people will be inspired to participate more. Absolutely. Well, we'll we'll bring you on for another half hour and talk about that. You bet. (laughs) John, uh, Andrew, I always appreciate the time. Uh, You've been generous with it this morning. Thank you both. Thanks, Shane. Thanks. All right, that's John Horgan and Andrew Weaver, uh, leaders of the BC NDP and the BC Green Party, respectively. On the other side, we're going to hear from Vaughn Palmer, we're going to hear from Keith Baldry and Rob Shaw on what is going on out there and probably talk a little bit about what these gentlemen just said. Uh, But first, let's get you uh, updated with the news at the bottom of the hour with Bob Price. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. An extended edition of uh, Inside Politics this morning. Going a little longer today to fit everything in. And joining me now for Edge of the Ledge segment, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. Well, uh, where do we start? Uh, why don't we start with Site C, since that uh, that was the biggest news uh, ending the day yesterday. Uh, Mr. Horgan, of course, writing uh, the CEO of BC Hydro to kind of essentially tell her to stand down on a couple of fronts. Uh, Vaughn, you wrote a column about that. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's a bit of a setup, actually. I think Horgan's looking for an excuse to fire the CEO of BC Hydro, and he's setting her up. He's, mm. he's, look, there, there are no big contracts being signed, so that's fine. But this eviction, that's the big issue. Uh, those people are being evicted. They've known her for some time. Uh, they have to be evicted so they can relocate the highway so when they start building the dam. Now, Horgan has said that construction can go ahead on the dam uh, while it's reviewed by the Utilities Commission, and Horgan isn't premier yet, although we expect he will be soon. So he really has no grounds to tell Hydro to do anything as I said, I think he's kind of setting the stage for what's likely to happen when he does become premier, which is he'll probably try to fire the CEO of Hydro. All right, and as you noted, uh, Hydro serves only one master, the existing government, and that's not the NDP right now. Uh, Keith? Well, I think Horgan's got to be a little careful here. To uh, this, this strikes me as a bit of an, uh, a sign of arrogance that he's not premier. It's not guaranteed he's going to be premier, although it's likely he's going to be premier. But, I mean, what's he going to start doing, firing off letters to every every crown corporation telling them what to do before he actually takes office? It puts these crowns in a tough spot. I mean, they are a caretaker. They're supposed to be in caretaker mode, but um, I think this has got more of a stunt written all over it than anything else. And Vaughn, I think Vaughn's correct. I mean, they're looking for a way to get rid of Jessica McDonald and a, and a few other uh, political appointees from the B.C. Liberals. There's going to be a lot of heads rolling once uh, the NDP moves in because they're going to be putting their people, their patronage appointments, to replace the Liberal ones, and uh, there's going to be a lot of them. Yeah, and they're gonna, I don't think they're going to be able to do that very quickly. They haven't been in government for a while. There's going to be a learning curve there, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I think Horgan's trying to have it both ways on, on Site C, which is pretty much his entire position on that project for quite a long time. But, you know, saying that he doesn't want uh, to lay off the 2,000 workers up there uh, during the review, but then also getting a lot of pressure to 
do something to make sure that they're not doing a lot of work up there during the review. So don't lay them off. Don't pause construction, but don't do certain times of constru- kinds of construction, and don't do it this way, and don't do that. I mean, it's not. He's trying to to have it always on site. See, I thought the letter was extraordinary that it was written in the first place and then not released for a whole day mm-hmm. by his office. I mean, it was never released by his office. It was given to an advocacy group to release at four o'clock in the afternoon, a day after it was written, which. I think is a bad sign for the Horgan office, and it makes me wonder what's going on down there and uh, if there's other things happening that uh, we have no idea about right now. Letters, extraordinary letters being written that uh, we're going to see pop up in the hands of community groups in coming weeks ahead. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about this this green NDP deal before we dive into the speaker issue because we got the details of that this week. Uh, uh, Keith, let's go back to you. Anything in there that pop out at you other than kind of the spotlight items? Well, what popped out at me was what what didn't pop out to me, which was that there were, there were a number of uh, gr- uh, green priorities that fell off the table. Shutting down Site C. I mean, this is now it's just being sent for a review, uh, which may be covered for keeping it going. Who knows? But it's certainly not shutting the project down. Uh, nothing about uh, the, the the tolling situation. The Greens favor more tolls. There's nothing in there about about uh, that particular. Uh, uh, issue the the Greens were looking for to impose a, a new electoral system on the electorate. It's instead it's a referendum. Uh, there's a number of other issues in there near and dear to the Greens that, that basically didn't show up in this deal. And uh, Vaughn wrote a piece this week, and I agree with him that. Uh, uh, this is basically the NDP party platform. This is not a green platform. It's it's party platform of the NDPs that the Greens agree with by and large. But uh, Andrew Weaver has signed a document that holds them to vote for every single NDP budget for four years yeah. when he didn't extract really anything from them that he would not have extracted from them on a vote-by-vote basis. So uh, he really, I think, gave the store away here for four years without getting anything really in return that w- he wouldn't have got otherwise uh, from an NDP government that he just propped up on a vote-to-vote basis. As you noted, Vaughn, uh, two heads but one NDP brain. Yeah, I think what we saw here, Shane, is that the pros uh, in being in government, knowing how government works and knowing how to negotiate is John Horgan and uh, Bob Dewar, the uh, chief of staff that he brought in from Manitoba. I think they figured out partway through the talks that Weaver had no choice but to go to the NDP, that Weaver's own caucus wouldn't stand for a deal with the Liberals. And at that point, I think Horgan said, uh, here's my offer. And his offer was essentially the NDP platform. I don't see that Weaver got much more than that. He got party status. He was going to get that from the Liberals, too. He got a lot of commitments to consult, but a commitment to consult is not necessarily a commitment to do what the junior partner wants to do. So I don't think Weaver comes out of this looking like a very good negotiator. And the Liberals have been quick to pounce, branding this thing the Green DP, Rob? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that the Greens got it, it's not what they wanted exactly, but the the, the core glue that will hold this thing together uh, for potentially a couple years, maybe, is proportional representation. And it's not in the form that the Greens wanted, which Keith said was immediately. Instead, it comes with a referendum next fall. But that's, that is all that the Greens are hoping for at this point, because if they can get that, then they could have many more MLAs under a new system uh, based on the votes that they got this time. So that, that's sort of the reason why I think it might work, because you need to have the referendum, then you need to give time to Elections BC to pull it off. So it's in the Greens' interest to suck it up, basically, on this uh, for at least a couple years. And uh, But, you know, there's a lot built into it, the, the consultation, good faith and no surprises. I think it's going to be very hard for both sides to have, because this is an NDP government that's going to be harshly criticized by the business community, by a lot of people. And governments, when they get criticized, they tend to kind of get into a little bit of a bunker mentality under siege. They're going to, it's going to be tough for the Greens to constantly get access to all this inside information and these briefings and what exactly are the secrets of the NDP before they do them, because I think the NDP is going to hunker down uh, once the uh, flak starts flying. And, uh, the Greens might find themselves far more on the outside than they think right now. Now, assuming we get an NDP government here, and we'll dive into the speaker issue in a second, uh, the big question is, and Andrew Weaver pitched this thing, is providing certainty. Well, we've seen the deal. We've seen what sort of, uh, as Rob said, the glue that's putting these guys together. Do we have certainty that this is going to last any kind of length of time, Keith? 
Oh, I, uh, I'll be surprised if this lasts more than a year or maybe two, but I think, uh, I think it'll get to next spring. But uh, no, there's no certainty here at all. It's a 44-43 legislature. It's one car accident, one bad case of the flu away from uh, falling in terms of a government. If, if, this were to, if those uh, things were to befall someone, an MLA on that side, at a critical time, like a confidence vote for the throne speech or budget items. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's certain at all, but it, it's certain in the short term. Once we get over that speaker issue and they can figure out, you know, who's going to, how they're going to finagle that and finesse that, I think uh, they'll get through a throne speech. They'll probably get through their first budget. Uh, but after that, as Rob says, you know, it's what, what what troubles you in government is not the things you plan on. I mean, that that's your own agenda. It's what happens external to that, the, sur- the surprises, the crises, the controversies. Uh, it can cause the government to go in a in a direction it had never an- had, had anticipated. I mean, look at the liberals the last couple of years going suddenly addressing the housing crisis when they said there wasn't one and flip flopping all over the place. That's what governments do, and it's going to be hard to hold that coalition together once, as Rob says, the flak starts flying tensions mount, suddenly Weaver isn't invited to every single uh, briefing because the Premier's office is in crisis. I mean, that's the reality of governing, and it's about to hit these guys as time goes on. Not in the short term, but once we get past a few months, uh, things are going to get a little uh, more fragile than they are now. As Tristan Hopper noted in his uh, piece, uh, one case of diarrhea away from government falling. Juan. I could have done without that image. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it, I, I talked to a New Democrat who was heavily involved in the in the government in the 1990s, and and his comment was like, you know, it's very difficult, even with a majority, and the NDP had one of just three seats for the last half of the 90s. He says, very difficult with a majority to get legislation drafted and through the House, to get bills through the House, to get budgets through the House, uh, even with a with a a majority of three. His his doubt is that he thinks his own party, and he doesn't wish his own party any ill will. He said he just thinks they're naive. They don't realize how difficult it is to manage the business of the House, to get all the legislation that you need to get done, to get all your budgets through. And he said to be talking about a more active committee system in the House, or letting the Liberals introduce bills, or letting the Greens introduce bills, he said they're going to get swamped very, very quickly just by the daily job of keeping the legislature going and keeping the legislation and the budgets passed. And my sense is the B.C. Liberals are feeling there is going to be an election sooner rather than later, which is why uh, Christy Clark isn't going anywhere, Rob. Yeah, you know, to pick up on Vaughn's point, um, part of this agreement legislates in at some point uh, you know, guaranteed spring and fall sittings of the legislature, uh, which the NDP are going to grow to hate very quickly. Uh, the Liberals did not invent the current schedule where they basically try not to be here as often as possible. That MLAs don't like being here. MLAs want to be in their constituency on all parties. They want to be at home with their families. They don't want to be here all year, sitting here stuck, chained to their desk. So the NDP are going to regret that, I think. They've also said they're going to uh, increase the committee system at the legislature. Well, that is going to prove a monstrous pain in the rear end uh, for all parties, particularly the government. Committees are going to be doing all sorts of weird things and calling witnesses and asking for documents and writing reports. And so, you know, they've they have created a headache that will will grow over time and will strain that uh, relationship between the Greens. I mean, can you imagine the Greens partnering with the Liberals to bring in legislation? It's one of the scenarios the NDP have said, oh yeah, they're free to do. I I find it extremely unlikely that the NDP is going to allow that to happen or freak out if it does happen, if the opposition gets together, including one of their partners, and passes legislation they don't want. So the tensions, just in the way this place is going to work, are going to be uh, off the charts very quickly after the government gets going. It's going to be a lot of fun to cover this. this, (laughs) I'll tell you that. It's been a lot of fun already. Uh, Guys, let's talk about the speaker, but let's uh, take a quick break before we dive into that thing. So uh, more with uh, Rob, Vaughn, and Keith uh, on Inside Politics on Radio NL right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. 
Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, the, the speaker isn't a position we generally focus a lot on, albeit uh, Linda Reed definitely put it in the spotlight a couple times here and there. Uh, but it, it, it looks like it may be a roadblock. And Hamish Telfer telling me earlier this week that uh, he anticipates this thing's going to be a showdown and may, in fact, be such a deadlock that it could uh, force the lieutenant governor's hand to perhaps uh, trigger another election. So uh, how do we deal with this thing, Keith? Well, uh, how we deal with it remains to be seen. So it's uh, 44-43 for the NDP and the Greens. But when we when the House resumes sitting, the Liberals are the government. Uh, premier uh, Christy Clark is still the premier. They will introduce a throne speech. But before they can do that, they have to uh, elect a speaker. Normally, that would come from the government side, uh, and the Liberals are the government. The Liberals have served or have decided in a caucus meeting that none of them will put their names forward or allow their names to be put forward, which means uh, the NDP and the Greens are going to be expected to choose a speaker. It's basically a game of chicken uh, right now. Uh, the, the NDP could uh, conceivably, because the speaker by convention, constitutional convention, votes for the government, it's possible an MLA from the NDP side uh, allows their name to be put forward and announces they will not be held by that convention. They will not support the government. That's one scenario. Uh, the other scenario is a complete deadlock. Nobody puts their name forward, in, in which the clerk would ask uh, them to uh, have one more chance at it. And if nobody puts their name forward, then he goes to the lieutenant governor and says this place cannot function, and she decides either to call an election or turn to Horgan and allow him a chance to make the place work. So it's uh, it's uh, going to be an interesting little decision uh, that either side has to go through. It is quite conceivable the Liberals could also just say, fine, we'll put a speaker in, and that speaker will resign after the throne speech, after the throne speech is defeated. And then the Greens and NDP, if they form government, would have to find their own speaker. I think that's probably the most likely outcome, but right now everybody's keeping their cards close to their vest. All right, Rob, you wrote an interesting column on this. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the Liberals are going to blink first on this. Uh, Christy Clark called the legislature back so that she could put a throne speech out there for a reason, and that's that she wants people to see all of the things that she was going to offer the Greens, give them the impression that she has changed since the election, or at least heard what they had to say. And she can't do that if she bogs down the legislature in a procedural mess involving a position no one has ever heard of, um, when it's kind of, as the incumbent government, kind of her responsibility to sort it out. So I see them blinking, putting a speaker in, a loyal soldier, someone who will volunteer to take a knee and resign the moment Clark goes down, and then leave the mess for the NDP to figure out. Because the long-term implication for the NDP is that when they put a speaker up, they end up in a tie vote on every single issue with the Liberals. And then it's up to the Speaker to break the tie. And, you know, constitutional experts of what, who are having a heyday in the, with this situation that we're in now, <laughs> it's to say that it's not really the Speaker's long-term job to break all of the ties in the favor of the government uh, constantly. They're supposed to be the, the non-partial uh, referee. Uh, and uh, But, you know, these are weird times. And I think the job of the Speaker is going to change, and it's just going to become a partisan hack like the rest of the people in the house and uh, and eventually this will sort itself out because the stakes are so high and there's so much power uh, uh, up for grabs and the speakers just become another another tool in in the machinery of government i think yeah although john horgan noted with me in the last half hour uh looking at the silver lining of this thing saying hey listen this is a wonderful opportunity to learn about the westminster system Ron? <laughs> that's true it's like we're conducting a course in political science 101 here yeah. where every single rule and every single tradition is examined i asked an interesting question about the ndp scenario that keith just described which is that a new Democrat does stand for Speaker as soon as the House sits and becomes Speaker because they're the only candidate to Christy Clark's last legislature session. That person would then, as Keith suggested, announce that they're not they're going to break with convention and vote to defeat the government. So that that could happen, uh, and then that person would would remain a Speaker if Horgan becomes Premier. And and so I asked the question, well. What's the penalty for breaking a convention? And I said, well, there is none. <laughs> no penalty, right? It's a, it's a crime without a penalty. Uh, it's a tradition and a convention, and you're, you're supposed to respect parliamentary conventions, but we're in extraordinary times. So the point that was made to me was everybody would understand why the New Democrat was doing that. And, in fact, he would 
or she would be fulfilling the wishes of the electorate for a change of government. Is there any kind of ammunition for the Liberals in just saying, no, we're not going to do it, we're just going to keep this deadlock going and sort of you know, roll the dice on the Lieutenant Governor triggering another election, or, or no? No, I don't think. I, agree I think they'd look... Yeah, they look, they'd look like they had caused the election, and I think the electorate would be quite angry. I think Rob's right. The Liberals will blink first on this, because it really doesn't suit anybody's purpose to play these little games and, and trigger a potential uh, vote. All right. So have we heard yet when the legislature might be called back? Any news on that front or no? Sort of thought around the week of uh, July 19th, uh, by, again, tradition and custom, the government asks the clerk's office to call the House back and gives the process a couple of weeks. MLAs won't be sworn in until the middle of next week, uh, and so the notice will probably go out today or next week and uh, figure, say, if it's next week, a couple of weeks, so probably the House would sit sometime in the week of July 19th. It's possible later than that. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. Yes, June 19th. That's correct. You frightened me there for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) But they do have to get going. I mean, the the wisdom is that they're going to run right out of money in September, so we can't really waste around on this thing. Well, and they also have, by law, have to pass the spending estimates for the ministries by the end of September. So uh, there's, there is a timeline in play here. All right. Uh, guys, I want to talk uh, about uh, proportional representation in Trans Mountain Pipeline and uh, what Christy Clark is thinking. Uh, if you want to hang on, and we'll uh, get updated with the news at the top of the hour and more with uh, Rob Vaughn and Keith on Inside Politics, a special extended edition of Inside Politics here on Radio NL. Local. First, CHNL, AM 610 in Kamloops, RadioNL.com, the Valley's first choice for local news. Accountable to you, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back, a special extended edition of Inside Politics. Today, uh, still talking to Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, the, the deal between the Greens and the NDP, one of the issues that caught my eye was proportional representation, the fact that they're going to establish a clear question, campaign for it, and then hold a referendum uh, alongside the municipal elections in 2018. Uh, it was raised to me from former politicians that uh, there's some concern here, considering the extremely low voter turnout in elections, 33 percent back in 2014. Uh, Thoughts on that, Keith? Well, you know, it it cuts both ways. Some municipal politicians like a low turnout because they've got their little machines and uh, they've got their base of voters who always come out and vote for them. And that's why you don't see necessarily a lot of turnover in municipal politics because the vote is so low. On the other, and the one of the counter arguments is that well, if we have a referendum on changing the voter system, that will increase turnout. I wonder about that. I'm not convinced it will, and I do worry that we could be switching to a new electoral system that is dramatically different than the one we have, uh, with a relatively small portion of the population actually taking part in the decision to do that. Yeah, that's exactly the concern. Although uh, both John Horgan and Andrew Weaver told me that they think it's going to drive up participation numbers. Fun. Um, it does push up participation numbers in some places, but um, there's an awful lot of countries in the world that use PR that don't have much heavier turnout than we got in this election, which was 60%. Um, the only place in the world that seems to get really good turnout year after year is Australia, and that's because it's against the law to not yeah. vote there. You have to vote, and you're fined if you don't. So I'm not persuaded that over time PR would increase turnout. Yeah, Australia fines people $50, and they actually keep embassies open 24 hours a day on voting day so people around the world can vote. Uh, the other question out of that, to Rob, is that's a pretty tight timeline. I mean, we haven't formed government yet. We haven't done a lot of this stuff, and then they're going to have to put together a clear question and a campaign and then vote on it in 2018. Yeah, they got to pick the type of uh, system, too. There are you know, different options. And I, I, you know, John Horgan said they're going to have one option. They're not going to say, here's different types of, you know, STV and, and whatnot. It's, it's going to be one option, one clear question. It's a 50% plus one margin to pass. So 50% of a, you know, 33% Kamloops voter turnout rate, uh, not that many people when you think about it. It's not the 60% threshold uh, used in the last, uh, the last uh, referendum. So they could pass. Um, you know, Elections BC is going to need a while to change the system after that if it does pass, and that's why, conceivably, um, you know, if the Greens want to make this work, you need another year, maybe two, after the referendum to overhaul the entire way that we vote and uh, redraw a bunch of boundaries or create shared pools or God knows what is going to happen there. 
of which makes it a, a three-year proposition uh, conceivably. This, and this has implications for places like where you are, Shane, uh, Kamloops. Our electoral system uh, takes into account that we, that geographical uh, concerns have to be uh, have to be taken into account. So, places with sparse populations have ridings are represented by ridings. I'm not referring to necessarily Kamloops, but you know, look at Nechako yeah. Lakes or yeah. some of the northern ridings have very relatively few people compared to a riding in Burnaby. In most proportional representation models, that is not taken into account. That is just going to be th- those regional. Um, uh, differences are not going to be taken into account in most pop uh, prop, uh, rep uh, models, and I, I think that will be an issue in this yeah. campaign. It's going to play differently outside of Metro than it is going to play inside Metro. So what I'm hearing from you guys is this is a, this is a very complex, sophisticated change that not necessarily should or could be slotted into the timeline provided. And uh, I think when people see the system, uh, there tends to be a backlash. A lot of people found the STV system too complicated. But Keith's right. Uh, One of the Democrats told me last week that what they're thinking of doing, one of the things they might do, is just use the same boundaries as for the federal election. There's 42 seats there. And then take another 40 seats, and those would be elected at large to make the system proportional. The consequences of that for Keith is quite right. The north and the interior is you'd suddenly have, well, right now there are about 24 seats in the north and the interior. You'd go down to 10. So a lot of constitu- a lot of places would suddenly find themselves in a very big riding with really no local MLA mm. in order to make this nifty uh, proportional representation system work, and I'm not sure they're going to like it. Yeah, it's interesting because the basic essence of the whole system is a better representation of the population at whole, but uh, it doesn't sound like that that is necessarily so good for rural areas. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, Rob, any final thoughts on that? No, it's, uh, I remember the last uh, campaigns we've had on this, they get pretty nasty. Um, you know, some NDP and Green supporters are very split on this issue, so you're going to see um, a lot of fear-mongering on on very complex issues that'll be the the public campaigns for and against uh, this referendum and it's going to be confusing for the public not only to understand a complex system but get through the total falsehoods and rhetoric that are going to be flying around at the referendum too yeah and a lot of ndv activists do not like this they they don't want to change so it's uh, the ndp is kind of split on this this is really a real green party thing because they've got a vested interest this is the best way to guarantee their continued survival and growth in a legislature is through proportional representation so it's uh, it's very much more a green issue than a democrat one all right interesting uh before we go i wanted to touch on uh, christy clark she hasn't done a whole lot of stuff uh, in uh, in the public spotlight we did get to hear her uh, talk this week uh, where she answered a handful of questions from reporters i was a uh, i was a little caught off guard by uh just based on the timing, it was half hour before we got the deal details from Andrew Weaver and John Horgan. Uh, so she, you know, kind of set it up like she's going to try and pull the rug out from underneath people. Yet she seemed really fatalistic as towards the final result. Uh, Keith, what did you read into that? Well, she she seemed down. Uh, one way of going first, she didn't have to talk. <coughs> she didn't have to talk about the deal. You know, it's just she set the stage. In fact, if you look at a lot of the news coverage. The emphasis for you know for some front pages and top of newscasts was the fact that Clark said, um, you know, she realized she wasn't going to be premier much longer. Basically, ceded that there was going to be a change in government. So she sort of set the agenda there. One of her last times as premier, she's going to be able to do that. And I think the voters, you know, signaled they gave her a timeout uh, for who knows how long, maybe forever, maybe not. And I think uh, that's one reason why she's not doing much in public is she realizes that. The public really probably doesn't want to hear from her much right now, but they will hear from her in, a, in two or three weeks when the House is recalled. Vaughn? I don't think that Clark could have done anything to get a deal with Weaver either, because I don't think his own people would have stood for it. I think no. that yep. came apparent very quickly. Yeah, as uh, as Keith noted, there was at least one green MLA who was uh, not very kind to the Liberals. Uh, Rob? Uh, you know, I, I think there are people speculating that Christy Clark has an ace up her sleeve or some type of final, um, you know, twist in this saga. She's going to arrive in the legislature and unveil the mysterious missing MLA that gives her the majority or the floor crosser. I don't think so. I think her path now is to put out a throne speech that has what she wants to campaign in the next election on, has the core liberal values for the province that uh, part of the province that voted for her. And very, you know, um, without a lot of looking like she's trying to hold on to power, transition into opposition, where I think she will be 
quite possibly one of the most effective opposition leaders we've ever had in the province. She's going to be fierce over there for a while. Um, I think she has enough loyalty in caucus to last a year as the opposition leader, and then things the wheels fall off the bus for her. So she can survive uh, if she plays this right and hopes that the coalition or the accord falls apart between the NDP and Greens in the next six months to a year. But uh, that is kind of the path that she's on, and beyond that, uh, there's a cliff that she's going to go over. That said, we could be in for a throne speech of the ages. Keith? Oh, yeah. I mean, Rob's right. It's, it's going to be partly the the campaign platform for the next election for the Liberals. And there'll be an acknowledgement, I think, in there that the past platform just didn't cut it with the voters. There had to be different things in it. And more, I think, uh, softer, uh, greener issues will be in there. It's also, I think, going to be designed to embarrass the Greens somewhat for going to the NDP and forcing them to vote down a throne speech that will likely have in it a number of things the Greens have been campaigning for. So... Uh, you know, which will include campaign uh, finance reform, those types of things. Uh, so it's uh, it's partly it's obviously a political document. All thrown speeches are, but it's partly campaign going forward, and a, a document to sort of force these two two parties who are joined together to vote down something that, on a number of fronts, they would normally uh, support. And uh, Vaughn, any room in there that she could win somebody over on that thing? I mean, that's obviously the the, the wild wish, but. Both parties have been sounding each other's members out about who might be, you know, uh, willing to cross the floor for a cabinet post and stuff like that. But I think, first of all, B.C. is polarized for a reason. And second of all, nobody knows how long this thing is going to survive. So are you going to sell out your principals, your friends, and your family for what might be three months, uh, six months? Uh, I don't think so. I'd I'd be surprised if anybody crosses. And I think I wouldn't go too overboard if I were Clark on that throne speech it's going to be a dead letter i don't even think it's going to get that much coverage because i think people realize that um she's cast her check it's over and uh you know she may go to the opposition benches and rebuild but she doesn't have many more cards to play as premier yeah uh we're a final word to you rob no it's going to be it's going to be fantastically entertaining to watch the next <laughs> few weeks play out we haven't been in the i think it'll be the second time in a hundred years uh, that a government will fall on the floor of the House to an unconfidence vote, so it doesn't happen very often. And uh, it's, uh, you know, starting with the Speaker all the way through the throne speech and then the LG, we're, uh, we're in for a, a wild ride. It's going to be a lot of fun. It definitely is, and it's going to provide a lot of fodder for this show. Gentlemen, uh, before I let you go, I thought I'd pass on some good news. Uh, Kevin Kruger is making a political comeback, albeit... Hey! albeit here in Kamloops uh, he's going to toss his hat into the by-election and go for a city council position so I expect uh, all of you to start uh, coming to cover Kamloops City Council more regularly (laughs) and out of earplugs to all the (laughs) councillors gentlemen I appreciate it thank you so much look forward to next Friday Bye-bye. Take care. There we go. There's uh, Vancouver's Sir. Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer and Global BC's Keith Baldry on a special extended edition of Inside Politics. We're not done yet. We're going to take a quick break and come back and delve into that Kamloops civic political scene here on NL. Accountable to you, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Our final segment of a special extended edition of Inside Politics here on Radio NL. And we're going to dive into the Kamloops civic scene. Uh, of course, uh, there's been a uh, kerfuffle there. We're heading for a by-election, uh, at least three seats at play. I wanted to get a little bit of insight to, uh, on that. So joining me now is John O'Fee, of course, chair of the Interior Health Authority Board, uh, but also a longtime former councillor. All right, John, interesting times on the Kamloops civic scene. Uh, you are a former councillor, a long-time resident of Kamloops and watching the civic political scene here uh, for a long time. Uh, obviously, there's, there's nothing nefarious going on here. Mark Spina is because of her uh, unfortunate battle against cancer, and again, we all wish her well, has decided to pull the plug at the end of June. Uh, that forced Peter Millibar's hand, which in turn forced Ken Christian, who wants the mayor's chair. But we have a situation here with about a little over a year by the time the by-election is held before the next civic election. We're going to have three seats, at least three seats, up for grabs. Uh, an unusual situation in your estimation? Or? Uh, it certainly hasn't come up for, for quite a while in Kells. Obviously, uh, when Mayor Kenneth Cartwright passed away would be the last time that we had this sort of situation. That's when Cliff Branchflower became the mayor. Mm. It was her passing that, that led to him seeking the mayor's chair, then ultimately sat in the mayor's chair for a number of terms after that. 
Okay. So uh, is there any, uh, the argument here has always been, and it applies a little bit because of Peter Millibar's situation, to better align provincial and civic elections so that when you have civic politicians that are looking to elevate themselves, it doesn't cost municipalities to hold a by-election. Is there any kind of ammunition in that gun or no? Well, I mean, I suppose that, that to, to align them is one thing. Uh, they could both be four-year terms. I suppose there is some wisdom to that. One of the things when you have longer terms is, is people are going to be in personal situations and mm-hmm. their family or whatever commitments are going to cause them to need to resign. It wasn't that long ago we had two-year terms, and I was on school board when, when it went to a three-year term, and we thought, wow, that's, that's a little bit longer, and now it's a four-year term. So... Um, um, elections are obviously expensive things. They're obviously necessary things, <laughs> yeah. and, and we've yeah. got to find that that balance. Hold an alignment, I suppose, w- w- would make some sense. But not, well, provincially, who knows? We may see an election provincially sooner yeah. than we expect as well. So um, uh, th- those things are obviously uh, difficult to predict. And, and uh, like you say, we obviously wish March Speed the best, and we understand completely why she's had to yeah. make the decision that she's made. Yeah, and aligning it would not have helped in that situation. Well, exactly, and and that you know, four years is is, is a significant stretch of time when people's uh, personal, family, health. Uh, situations might change, and, and uh, these are situations that, that we should almost expect in, in over some period of time yeah. when we have four-year terms. Do you know do you know Mark at all, I assume? Yeah. Oh, I know Mark. I yeah. sat on city council with Mark for many years, and uh, obviously wish you nothing but the best. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough fight, and it's, man, it's one of those things, and, and it was... It was powerful in council when she made the announcement, and even you know reporters who were supposed to be on the sidelines were standing up and providing tear-filled uh, tributes. Uh, it well, was we're, we're all human yeah. beings, right? And 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 uh, Marg is a lovely woman. She's done wonderful work in this community uh, long before her time on city council. I know she was on the food bank, and you know she's a, a BC Community Achievement Award recipient. She's a she's a class person, the sort of person that our community needs, and so. No one takes any pleasure, of course, in, in her current situation. All right. Uh, Ken Christian always wanted the mayor's chair. Uh, it sounds like uh, Cynthia Friedman might want to come in and take a run at that. So there might be something of a race, potentially. Of course, papers have yet to be filed. But uh, is Ken going to run away with this thing, you think? Or? Well, obviously, Ken's the man to beat. There's no doubt about that. Ken's been in a lot of civic elections, and he's always done very well in each one of them. <laughs> so so uh, you know, I think you... You've got to look at that and see that that uh, he's he's uh, got some strength of incumbency and name recognition. I think he's been a steady hand both at school board and at the city council, and uh, th- there's a natural appeal for that. So uh, it's never a lock election. That's why we have elections, <laughs> yeah. obviously. But but Ken is certainly a, a person who's got a very strong community profile, and I think uh, would be the the one to beat. What's your assessment of sort of the current council right now with its present configuration? Well, you know, I think they're 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 down a couple of bodies, obviously, and and uh, politics are, are such that that that's going to be a situation. Uh, they're, they're, you know, there's a saying in business where two people agree, one of them's unnecessary. So to have a, a diversity of opinions on a council isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, people should challenge each other's points of view. We want to move the city forward in an intelligent way. So uh, I don't think that that you should elect a whole slate of people who all agree with each other. The co- contrasting voices aren't necessarily bad. And, and uh, I think sometimes that ultimately produces a better result. One of the things that I think that has sort of escaped the spotlight a little bit because of the, the way it happened with the provincial election drama and then with with Mark Spina and then, the, you know, the triggering of the by-elections and we're all talking about what's next is uh, Peter Millibar making his exit after an extraordinarily long period as mayor. I mean, he's had a profound impact on this city. Is there a way to kind of, you know, uh, quantify or sort of sum up his contribution in the mayor's chair? Well, Peter and I have been involved in a lot of projects. When Peter first came on City Council, that's when we started the whole Tournament Capital project, and, and uh, Peter was one of the spearheads of that, uh, ensuring that that project came along you know, um, with the mayor and, and, and other members of council, of course, but, but that's when we were putting together the plans and, and the referendum and how this thing was all going to take shape. And so Peter's been involved from that point forward. And you walk around town and you'll see his name on a number of plaques and projects that he's been involved mm-hmm. in where, where he's been, you know, a guiding hand, a, a steady influence, somebody who has, I think, a vision for the community that, that is, has, has helped move us forward. Do you think he will stand as, as sort of historically among one of the greater contributors to the city as mayor or no? You know, I think that's too early to tell at this point in time. Um, I think that 
that uh, each mayor brings their own perspective on things. Uh, you know, Peter has certainly been uh, a steady person, he's a very calm influence, but he's got a, a real passion for the community. Uh, I think Peter's biggest legacy from his role as mayor is actually more behind the scenes in terms of our hospital expansion. I know Peter was very much involved in uh, the expansion of Royal Island Hospital, the establishment of the master plan, and moving that whole uh, process forward. And I don't think he's necessarily given the credit he should be given for, for that. And that's the biggest construction project in the history of this community. So conversely, is there pressure on a mayor that comes in after somebody who's been in the chair with for that long and has had that much of a contribution? You know, I think Ken, Ken is certainly up to the task, and I'm not trying to speak ill of anyone else who runs and yeah. Ms. Friedman as a person that I know and a colleague of mine at the university, but uh, I think Ken has a, a clear idea of where he thinks the city should go. Ken is going to be, again, a sensible, steady hand. He he, hopefully, and I don't speak for the man, obviously, <laughs> but, but I think he, he will try to, to make his mark in his own way uh, if he's given that opportunity. Now, you've served on council, and, and one of the intriguing things going on here now is that with all the resignation set for the end of June. On June 17th, council has to make a decision on KGHM Ajax. Mm -hmm. You're obviously not part of that decision, but as a, as a former councillor, you're aware of the responsibilities and that kind of thing. Uh, is it, is it, I don't know, is it awkward to have this play out with that timing in mind? I suppose. I mean, the Ajax project um, is, is driven by a number of factors, and the city's approval or disapproval alone isn't necessarily going to establish no. its outcome. No. And so, um, you know, that that is is uh, certainly a, a symbolic statement for, and, and an important. I don't mean symbolic in the sense it's not important, and yeah. that, that people aren't going to pay attention to it. If the city's not on your side, uh, that's going to be a big factor as to whether or not I think this thing gets approved. Uh, likewise with First Nations, I think those are those are be difficult hurdles to overcome for the project proponents if you don't have the city and the First Nation on side with you. Yeah. So uh, I'm not saying it can't be overcome. I'm saying that, that that certainly creates some hurdles. So it's not sort of make or break for the mine, but obviously it has a significant impact. Yeah, so one of the, one of the questions we had, because Ken was asked by Arjun Singh if he should just delay that two weeks in order to be there in council. And he's declined, uh, which uh, I don't know what you think of that move, whether he should have put off two weeks or, I mean, it, again, heavy responsibility for councillors. Do they have to be there? Should they take it more seriously? I, I suppose there's two sides to that. On the one hand, you could say, uh, you know, ultimately there will be an election in, in a year and a half or so uh, for everyone on council. And, and in that election, those Ajax may be an issue or may not be an issue at that point in time. I don't really know. But there will have to be a level of accountability for how you voted on that Ajax <laughs> decision. And uh, uh, Peter doesn't face that accountability, so to speak, and that he won't be running for mayor again. And so... Um, uh, that's that's one side of the coin, and on the other side, um, the the more voices one way or the other, the, the better, I suppose. Yeah. Now, as far as we've talked a lot about Ken Christian and Mayor, but uh, we've got two council seats open as mm -hmm. well. We know Kevin Kruger is going to release his signaling; he's going to be one of the first to to file his papers. He tells us uh, how important is it to get good people from the community to kind of put their name, whether it's a by election or a regular civic election, to, to put their name in the hat. Well, you know, I can tell you, having been on council for 11 years, it's 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 a lot of work. There's a lot of responsibility. It's a very large organization, and it, it is uh, the kind of commitment that a lot of people simply can't give. You know, they don't have the flexibility in their work schedule to, to take it on. Um, you are kind of, you know, subjecting yourself to public criticism for everything that you do, so you have to have a bit of a thick skin. Uh, have a clear idea of where you want to go and, and you know good community-minded people who, who want to make sensible decisions and drive the community forward tend to be the people that, that I think succeed on council and, and uh, that's certainly what I'd be looking for as a voter. All right I'm sure you're ruling yourself out so I am <laughs> I've got enough on my plate right now. <clears throat> uh, before we let you go uh, considering you are chair of the Interior Health Board uh, we saw the unfortunate uh, numbers of the overdose crisis okay. the other month which just continue to, to just be awful uh, you guys have the supervised injection mobile site cool. just sitting up the street from our studios here waiting for Health Canada approval. Any any sign from Health Canada yet or no? Um, I, I think that approval is, is en route. I think that the, the, you know, this is, I think people have to understand, and I'm, I'm talking to your listeners now when I say if each one of your listeners looks into their circle of family and friends, they don't have to go very far to find an addict. And it doesn't necessarily mean a drug addict. It could be gambling, could be alcohol, could be whatever. And we collectively, as British Columbians, as human beings, have to start to acknowledge that addictions are a medical issue for people. We need to take a new and innovative approach to this. Yeah. And uh, we know that jails don't work. We know that the war on drugs is lost. Uh, anyone can buy drugs. drugs our drug supply is more reliable than our electric supply mm -hmm. yeah. so uh, 
the notion that we can somehow choke off the flow of illegal drugs or we can do it from an enforcement standpoint is, is, is laughably false. It's been proven false for decades. So I think the time has come for us to acknowledge that and to start to look at how we can address this intelligently. We can look to places like Portugal, which have decriminalized, not legalized, decriminalized uh, personal possession of drugs and have looked at it more as a medical issue. What happens? Well, crime goes down, drug use goes down, over death, deaths go down. So it, it really is going to take a, a mind set change for all of us to start to look at this as the medical problem it truly is and try to address it from that perspective. We yeah. know that the, the, the court system and the jail system and enforcement have, have proven themselves uh, to be uh, complete failures. And I'm not, that's not a derision of, of the court system. No. I'm a member of the court system <laughs> as a lawyer, but uh, it, it's just a fact that that's not yeah. the solution. That's clear to me that that's, that's not the, the solution. One, yeah. Okay, it, it's been proven for decades that that's not the solution. So perhaps we should look around at, at uh, jurisdictions that have tried something different, that have shown some success, and start to address and attack this problem from a different angle. So bare bones, we're, we're hoping to get that mobile supervised site up and running yeah, as soon and, as possible. Yeah, and uh, you know, you're going to start to see the idea of introducing what's called agonist intervention therapy, which okay. is we're going to start to take the hardcore people and, and start to provide them with, with a, a substitute for heroin, essentially, and get them stable because, again, we can show that it's cheaper, that they're not engaging in, in drug-seeking behavior, which is prostitution and assaults and robberies and all these other crimes that are associated with that, we can get people stable, we can reduce social costs, and then once people are stable and on a heroin replacement program, they're far more likely to seek treatment and they're far more likely to be successful. So, you know, that is a bit of a sea change where, where it gets, it's somewhat counterintuitive where we wouldn't say, well, let's give people essentially heroin. Uh, that, that sounds illogical in some ways, and I understand that. It yeah. sounds illogical to me when I first heard it, but when yeah. you start to sort of think about it, now these people aren't spending their entire day begging, borrowing, stealing, assaulting uh, to get the money for heroin. And incurring costs. Now we can start to think about how we're going to get these people to the next level. And, and, and you take away that pressure from them, they can start to function uh, more normally and they can start to seek the treatment that they need. Yeah. Okay, John, now we're out of time, but I appreciate your insight both on the civic scene and on the, uh, on the uh, overdose uh, crisis front. appreciate that. My pleasure. And that's John O'Fee, Chair of the Interior Health Authority Board, uh, joining us to talk about civic politics here with a looming by-election, at least three seats up for grabs, including the Mayor's Chair. Uh, pretty pretty interesting comments from John there. Uh, thank you for tuning in and listening in a special extended edition of Inside Politics here on Radio NL. We'll be back Friday with the usual show as we continue to keep an eye on the provincial political scene and see who exactly is going to form government and how they will do it. Thank you for listening.